Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earl. Hey, we're here today with Dr. Holly Geyer talking about opioid use, opioid addiction, opioid overdose, and what parents can do to keep our teenagers informed and to also keep tabs on what they're doing when it comes to drugs and opioids. Opioid overdose is actually the number one cause of death in our country for people from teenagers through age 45. The death rate from opioid overdose is skyrocketing and is increasing every year in our country. It might seem like something we don't have to think about or worry about as parents, but it's really important to be aware of. What do we do? How do we have the right conversations? What do we say? How can we tell if something is going on with our child? And what do we do if it's time to get our teenager into treatment? Dr. Geyer is the author of the new book, Ending the Crisis, the Mayo Clinic's Guide to Opioid Addiction and Safe Opioid Use. She is an addiction medicine specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. She leads the Mayo Clinic's Arizona Opioid Stewardship Program. She served on several Arizona Department of Health subcommittees and is a member of multiple national organizations working to address the opioid epidemic. She lectures nationally on opioid addiction and safe opioid prescribing and has authored more than 70 peer-reviewed publications, book chapters, and educational resources. And she's here with us today to talk specifically about parents of teenagers and what we need to know about the opioid epidemic. Talk to me a little bit about this. So what got you so interested in opioid, in the opioid crisis? Why did you do all this research and write this book, Ending the Crisis? Ending the Crisis. This book is really the heartfelt effort of a number of us at Mayo Clinic in our opioid stewardship program that came together and recognized that we have a problem. And if we thought we had a problem a couple of years ago, it's only been magnified since COVID. I grew up in the world of addiction. My parents are both responsible for starting a drug rehab program up in Minnesota. And there wasn't a day that went by when I didn't hear a heartfelt story from someone who was living that life. And what surprised me by that world of addiction is how many came from what we would consider affluent or well-educated families that got roped up in opioid crisis problems. It was shocking. It's not just people living on the street. And so with that, I took that knowledge base, entered the world of medicine, um, became more involved, got my addiction medicine subspecialty, and uh, really used all of those skill sets in continuation to really help America understand what role we play in ending America's opioid crisis. I love that. I think this is something that really just touches all strata of society. And it's a lot of parents are really worried about this, the teenagers getting into really dangerous and dangerous drugs that can be really, you know, we hear about kids overdosing on fentanyl and things like that. But also my mom's a medical malpractice attorney and she deals a lot with doctors and really high functioning people 
people who are, you know, super successful and are also struggling with opioid addiction. And I think it's just something that, that really touches kind of people at all walks of life. And that's really, I think, important to talk about. It's so true. And Andy, I might have a number of titles or positions associated with me, but the heart of this book is a mom who's scared to death about her three little girls. I have a one, a three, and a five-year-old, and 50% of the world's fentanyl is trafficked through my home state of, of Arizona. You know, if these drugs stay within my borders, they are in my kids' lunches because a family member didn't put it in the right plastic baggie when they sent the lunch to school with their kid. You know, it's in the cannabis my kids might experiment with right outside my front door. It's a scary world. This is the first time I went trick-or-treating, Andy, with Narcan or Naloxone, the opioid rescue medication in my back pocket. There's something wrong with our kids if we as parents feel like we're in that desperate of a situation. You talk about this crisis or this epidemic. What, can you talk a little bit about that? What you have some kind of some charts and some statistics here in the book. There's some really graphs that were kind of surprising and shocking to me, including this one on page 27 about the increase in opioid related deaths that, you know, we see kind of some steady increase over the past 20 years in prescription opioid deaths, but really this purple line of synthetic opioid overdose deaths kind of starting in 2014 and just climbing really off the charts is something that's really scary to me. Absolutely. You know, to better understand why we're in the current crisis that we're at, which is well over 100,000 deaths related to drug overdoses each year and almost a million marks since the late 1990s for total overdose deaths related to opioids, you have to go back to our root causes. And that really started back in the 1990s when there was this overprescribing by physicians that was running rampant through the communities. Physicians, many of them well-meaning, were handing out opioids inappropriately to our teens to adults. In fact, by 2015, one out of every three American adults had received an opioid prescription. We recognize back in about 2012 that we were way over prescribing and many of the individuals that went on to use our opioids ultimately became dependent on them and then of course became addicted. So we stopped, or I shouldn't say stopped, but discontinued our rampant prescribing practices by 2012. And on those graphs, you're going to see a tapering or a plateau of prescriptions with pretty much steady improvements since then. But you know what happened to overdose deaths? They skyrocketed. 2012 to 2015, we see what we call the heroin epidemic when lives lost started taking this heightened trajectory upwards. And then around 2015 or so, that's when the synthetic opioids hit the market. Fentanyl and a number of analogs that are produced in illicit environments, no pharmaceutical company oversight. You don't really know what you're getting in these compounds, which could be one of other 30 compounds that are just like fentanyl. And when those hit the streets, that's when everything spiraled out of control. You might remember, Andy, back in the probably 2016 to 2018 timeframe, states wisened up and uh, there was mass campaigns across the America to start really uh, reining in overprescribing, reining in how we manage opioid use disorder and identifying it, putting limitations on prescriptions. Despite all of those interventions, you know what happened to overdose deaths? They worsened. 30% increase in overdose deaths in 2020, another 15% in 2021. Who knows what 2022 will look like? But you're absolutely right. What we thought would be the solution is anything but. We're still in crisis mode. 
And why is that? Why is it not all these efforts and all this, you know, media and attention that's going towards this? How is that actually, how's it getting worse still? I believe, and as my colleagues do at Mayo Clinic and our opioid stewardship program, we've been marketing our campaigns to the wrong population. For so long, there's been this over-dependency that the government will regulate us out of this crisis, or physicians will prescribe us out of this crisis, or drug treatment programs will treat us out of this crisis, or rehabilitate us out. And the reality is that's not the party that's affected. At the end of the day, there is a very personal responsibility on the part of every parent that's listening, on the part of every teen, on the part of every person that ever comes across an opioid along the cascade of their use, to use them wisely, store them safely, know their potential toxicities, and then have the information necessary to get out of the crisis, addiction patterns, things like that, if they come across them. That, Andy, is why we wrote this book. It is the first and only book on the market that talks a person through all of the things I mentioned about how to use opioids safely when they are and aren't appropriate, and then how to manage things like overdoses, addiction, how to find a treatment program, how to navigate the insurance industry, what is standard of care, how do you analyze what a good treatment program is, how do you help friends and family from a very personal level get out of this crisis. So what exactly is an opioid? And there's a difference between opiates and opioids. And I didn't quite really understand any of this until I read your book. And why do those two words exist? And Matt, why do we have to know both of them? We in the world of medicine like to be nuanced in our terminology. <laughs> For the everyday user of opioids, it will make no difference to them. An opiate is an opioid. Opiates historically have referred to anything that comes from its parent compound, which is the poppy plant, interestingly enough, many of which are grown in Afghanistan and then shipped over. Opioids are derived synthetically, so we make them in a lab essentially, but all of them can lead to the same potential toxicities, though varying degrees. Okay, yes. And um, what you talk about kind of how, I guess there's different, the, all of these drugs can be taken all orally or intravenously or snorted through the nose, I guess. But you know, what kind of some of these diagrams in here on how these kind of affect the body or get into the bloodstream? Yeah, how does that so work? opioids can enter into the body through many different routes. The way they come into the body will impact their risk of addiction, how high of a high a person can get, how risky they are to take, meaning toxicities like over-sedation and difficulty breathing. When they're made in pharmaceutical companies, they undergo rigorous testing to find out which route is safest to use. And so you'll see many opioids are taken traditionally in the oral route when they're given outpatient. And they undergo something called first-pass metabolism, which essentially changes that compound to something else and then allows it to slowly go across to the different parts of the body that are responsible for binding to the receptor and having their point of action. Whenever somebody changes that route, especially without a prescriber's regulation, you greatly increase the risks associated with that drug. So for example, if someone were to take oxycodone and shoot it up, right? They find syringes lying around and it goes straight across the blood, straight into the brain, by passing that blood-brain barrier, as we call it, the high is very high, but the risk of oversedation and overdose is tremendous. Same thing goes for snorting it or inhaling it. This is why it's so key to only take drugs as prescribed.
So can you talk just a little bit about overdose or how does overdose really even happen? And what are the risks or what increases the risk of that? So an opioid overdose occurs when there is over sedation and the person literally forgets to breathe. Now, when taken as an opioid from a prescriber, meaning in an appropriate route, at the right dose, through the right route, at the uh, right location and timing of when it's supposed to be given for the right indication by the right person, the risk of experiencing an overdose is very low. But when taken outside of any of those parameters, this is why it's the number one cause of death in adults under age 45. Um, the risks can be high. And so when someone experiences an overdose, sometimes what you'll see is that they'll be stuporous or less able to converse. They'll become very sleepy. They'll start becoming cold. You might hear funny breathing sounds. They may become unresponsive. All of those are emergency signs to call 911. That is your first step. And then the next step is to get a bottle or a vial of naloxone, the opioid rescue medication, and deliver it according to the instructions. You kind of break down in the book how to recognize and respond to overdoses, which I think would be really just important for everybody to understand, but especially parents of teenagers and having one of those kits on hand and understanding how to use it and understanding how to recognize overdose would be really, I think, worthwhile. 100%. I think what most people don't know is that almost all 50 states now have standing order prescriptions or some formulary of that, where essentially you don't have to go to a provider, your prescriber, to get a vial of naloxone. You can actually go through a local pharmacy where a state-run prescription system allows you to request the prescription and it's delivered right to you. I did that for my own family. We've got naloxone sitting in our house and we don't have opioids. It's so key. You know, when I was working with my my little three-year-old at the park the other day, um, this was probably two years ago, we had a situation where kids were screaming at the other end of the park and I grabbed my three-year-old's hand, we raced over and there lying on the floor right behind the bathrooms was probably a 12, 13-year-old blue, had been experiencing with drugs with his friends and had 911 not been activated and had EMS not showed up literally minutes within my arrival, that boy would be dead. And my little girl watched this and I didn't have naloxone on me. There is such a great purpose to keep naloxone on our persons. And I would encourage every person in our audience, especially if there's opioids in your house, go down, get some naloxone. The intranasal version is pretty cheap. Most insurances cover it and um, quick and easy to deliver. And that's like you're going to just kind of shoot it up someone's nose. And even if they're passed out like that, that it still is going to be effective. It is. As long as there's active circulation in the body, that is going to allow that medicine to go where it needs to go to resuscitate. And the drug is interesting. Any opioids that are bound to their receptors causing that over-sedation get kicked off by naloxone. And then naloxone binds to it, holds it tight, and doesn't activate it. Go through pretty bad withdrawals in that moment of awakening. It's always a medical emergency because with synthetic opioids like fentanyl, it can take a couple doses now of Narcan or naloxone to get someone back. So key to call 911. What is central sensitization? Central centralization. We're transitioning to the topic of chronic pain. 
And chronic pain, I think it's very important to understand, is very different from acute pain. Acute pain serves a purpose, and we all have it because it protects. Acute pain occurs when you get an injury or you undergo a procedure, and it's there to tell you, oh my gosh, I've been injured as a body, I need time to heal. Don't do this, don't do that. <laughs> it's an instruction manual, and what's so frustrating is the American mentality that there's a pill for that, right? There's a pill to get us out of these limitations, and unfortunately, what happens all too often is that we push beyond our limitations and we start developing that cycle of chronic pain greater than 45 or 90 days of ongoing almost daily pain is a disease to itself and it serves really no natural purposes of protection. Chronic pain can lead to many other features, one of which is called central sensitization. Say that word twice, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's essentially when the brain starts developing internal networks and pathways that amplify the pain signal without external stimuli. It's essentially a rewiring of the brain. And so some features of it include when someone touches something or gets touched that's not painful and they perceive it as pain. Or when you and I get touched by something that should be a one or two out of pain and they experience an eight or 10 out of pain. It's a horrible cycle to be in and my heart goes out to those people that struggle with it. The most important thing to know, Andy, about this situation is that chronic pain in general does not respond to opioids. There was a nice study done a couple of years ago that showed that 79% of American adults believe the indication for opioids is chronic pain and it couldn't be more reversed. Opioids actually make chronic pain worse in most situations. Interesting. And uh, it's pretty easy to think, hey, well, I have this pain that doesn't go away, so I need some strong painkillers for that. But it's really interesting learning about actually how that works in the brain and that some, sometimes that's not the answer. What happens is when we take opioids with chronic pain, those opioids kind of hijack the system temporarily. And you're going to keep. For many people who get started on opioids for chronic pain, it's the most relief they've had in a long time for the first couple of weeks, but then the opioids start to have their effect and the brain is remodeled by the opioids themselves. Day after day, week by week, they turn what should be dirt roads that connect different parts of the brains into four lane freeways. And as it rewires the brain, it actually increases the sensitization of the brain to painful stimuli. You get something called opioid induced hyperalgesia. In some patients, you require higher and higher doses to get the same effect as you develop tolerance. And what we end up with is all of the toxicities, none of the relief, and the sense of dependency that in many times turns into fulminant addiction. Not worth it. You talk a lot about that in the book and what to do kind of instead of using opioids when there's chronic pain like that. I'm really interested in how to spot opioid use disorder and what really leads to that and how to notice when that's happening. So I think for every parent listening, the number one thing they're probably scared of is my kid at risk for an overdose or addiction. And it's a scary question out there. I face it every day myself with my own kids. Opioid use disorder, also synonymous with addiction, is going to occur somewhere between 3 to 20% of individuals that ever touch an opioid. That's a study by the American Medical Association. And we recognize there's many risk factors that set a person up for addiction. Not everyone's going to be that 20% and not everyone's going to be that 3. Risk factors include younger age of youth 
a history of addiction or experimentation with other substances. And that's our kids, right? That's cannabis, that's tobacco. Touching even what we call lightweight substances like that can be a risk factor. If our kids have mental health disorders, so depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, any of these, certainly big risk factors for developing dependency and chronic use of opioids. Other things, if they live with chronic pain, if they've been in and out of the medical system, you know, I, I hear horror stories from parents whose kids have struggled with cancer and they're survivors. They've done amazing making it through some of the hardest diagnosis and the medical system has, in essence, propagated them through the addiction life cycle and they come out dependent on these medications. There's many risk factors just like that really make us want to use these drugs appropriately and safely in every population. Addiction or opioid use disorder is going to have some mainstream features and it's going to look different in younger or early users than it is in later users. But things I would say every parent should watch out for, you know, early signs might be a bit more withdrawn, spending time with friends that you don't necessarily think are the best influences on your kids don't have a history of substance abuse. Patterns of behavior in the household, such as being a bit more secretive, not as open. If at any time at the dinner table, you're noticing that they're not necessarily paying as much attention, not engaged with schoolwork as much, having trouble at school, these can be early features. As the life cycle of addiction progresses, it'll become much more prominent. And this is when you see them stealing. This is when they're gone long hours, they're not coming home. This is when you find frank evidence in the house in underwear drawers or sock drawers of syringes or drug paraphernalia. All of those can be, you know, things that you can look out for. And I actually encourage parents to, to screen for on a regular basis because this is such a prevalent problem. We're here today with Dr. Holly Geyer talking about opioid use among teenagers and everything parents need to know about the opioid epidemic and opioid treatment. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Get them out of the house. It's the number one thing that we tell parents. When you are done with your opioids for yourself and for your loved ones, make sure that they are being destroyed. In our book, we go into some detail about how to get rid of them, but in a nutshell, mix them with kitty litter. Go down to your local uh, CVS, Walgreens, or drugstore of your choice and ask for a bag that destroys these medicines. They'll do it there. You can even do take backs. And if you go to the DEA website, type in opioid take back and you'll find a reference site for where you can drop these drugs off, get them out of the house. If your child is struggling with moderate to severe addiction, relapse is often the norm, not the exception. And that's one of the most important roles friends and family play in someone struggling with addiction is the ability to navigate them through those relapses. You know, a boyfriend breaks up with a girl. She's struggling. She thinks it's her. She's never going to find another guy and her life is ending. Turn to the pill pill alleviates everything. And the problem is what we often see during relapses is they've lost tolerance to the dose that they were able to take before. They go back to that same place and it's the end. So key to have relapse action plans. So key to talk with them about what to do when and if they experience those emotional. By the way, relapses come in a series of cycles. You're going to see a relapse before it ever takes place in the emotions, in their activities, in most cases. So we talk through what that looks like just before a relapse, how to intervene. It's a tough day and age to be a parent. The study shows that well over 80% of kids that exit high school will have experimented with drugs and alcohol before they leave. 
big risk factors and a setup for a life of addiction. I think there are three main things, three key things that every parent should know when they're talking about their addiction concerns with their kids. Number one, it's a household mentality change that a pill is not the cure. I'll say it again. It's not the cure. And that goes for us as adults. We in America are the number one user of opioids in the world. 80% of the world's opioids are used in our country, and we're only 5% of the world's population. And again, that goes back to there's a pill for that, right? Well, keep going to adapt that mentality. When we race off and we're grabbing opioids for every small do-it-yourself project, when we're requesting um, for you know every small indication from our physicians, and when kids get the understanding that's how we handle life's problems, they're going to walk into life with that viewpoint. Same thing goes for mental health issues, Mandy, and this is huge. Kids have learned that these medications work to temporarily alleviate psychiatric and social distress temporarily before their problems become bigger than their solutions. So that's number one, educate your kids on this pill mentality as not being the way to approach life. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.